Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Cognitive Connections, Conversations on Dementia, with me, your host, Carrie Candy. What if you could see into the future what the effects of dementia will have on our province, our territories, or all of Canada? What if you could prevent it or delay it from overwhelming our healthcare system and enhancing quality of life for all Canadians living with dementia? Today, we've delved into what the world of dementia is estimated to look like in the next 25, 30 years. Not just as a medical condition, but as a societal impact that requires our attention, support, and compassion. So grab a cup of tea, find a comfortable spot, and prepare to embark on a journey of empathy, knowledge, and valuable resources that can help us navigate the path ahead. With me today is George Andrews, President and CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Alberta and Northwest Territories. Thanks for joining us today, George. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. George, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your role? Well, I am the, uh, as you mentioned, the President and CEO of the Alzheimer's Society for Alberta and Northwest Territories. And my job is to uh, work with a variety of different people to help support people living with dementia and their care partners, typically family, but not exclusively. We try to be a, a conduit, a broker of knowledge, make connections, because it's a very complicated healthcare system. And uh, when you have a diagnosis of dementia, it's often overwhelming. And it is over a period of time that these symptoms evolve. And people take time to absorb, they take time to understand what the options are, and to recognize that their life is going to change and their family's lives are going to change. On the other side of that, we work very closely with teams of volunteers and on research. Uh, we've just finished funding a Hope for Tomorrow call for proposals that's focused on Alberta-based institutions. And uh, we allocated a million dollars last week for different projects. Wow. So we're quite excited. Those projects are all focused on quality of life. And now, in a medical research field, a million dollars isn't a great deal of money, um, but it's enough to get things started. We think we have some great researchers in Alberta. They are providing world-class research that can have impact. Mm -hmm. And we want to keep some of these researchers here for a variety of reasons. One is because, as I mentioned, they're doing great research. These are all teaching hospitals and universities in, in this province. So we're bringing along the next generation of researchers and technicians and things like that. Mm -hmm. the, the other is many of these research projects have clinical trials. They have opportunities mm -hmm. to engage with people living with the disease. And by offering this research in Alberta, the people who live in this province and territory can participate in these studies and maybe benefit from them, but certainly provide some insight on how to improve quality of life. Right. And then the last piece is providing some support, as I mentioned before, with, with patients and people living with dementia. But we also work with government to help them understand the impact of policy. I would say that my experience has been that almost everybody in Alberta Health Services or, the, or Alberta Health or even seniors and other departments that are related to that, they're all genuinely interested in helping people living with the disease and their family members. But how do we work on policy? How do we make that connection around helping keep people out of an acute care environment? We know from a lot of anecdotal experiences and for some preliminary research that we will get more research on shortly, that often putting a dementia patient into an emergency room hallway 
or into an emergency process or into an acute care bed is the least productive and least supportive way of, of helping them. And also it helps to overwhelm the healthcare system, which is bursting at the seams already. Mm-hmm. In Alberta right now, we have 60,000 people who are living with a diagnosis. I personally think that number is understated for a variety of reasons, partly mm-hmm. because not everybody has access to uh, their own physician, mm-hmm. especially in rural Alberta. And secondly, because people are still dealing with the stigma of having a, you know, a neurological degenerative illness. And so they're in denial to themselves, they're in denial of their, fe- their family members. And so that number, I think, is largely underreported. Nationally, we talk about 600,000 people living with a, di- a diagnosis of dementia. So historically, we're about 10% of the national population. So that, that number kind of rings true. Mm-hmm. When we talk about what's going to happen over the next 25 years, that's when the numbers start becoming sobering. We're estimating, and this is a variety of different studies. The most recent one is the landmark study that came from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, which is able to document that we can expect approximately a 300% increase in in dementia cases. Wow. And, And I think that number is going to be even greater because as we work so hard to try to remove the stigma, we can see that more people are going to come forward and self-identify. And if you're looking for an example of how, why I think that's true, think back a decade or two about mental health. Mm-hmm. No one talked about it. Everybody kept it to themselves. And now, fortunately for people and society, we understand that this is an important issue and we can talk about it. We can seek help and we don't judge. Mm-hmm. Well, then in the next phase, then becomes with their neurological degenerative illnesses. So people are going to become more comfortable knowing that it's not their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. And and this is just something we have to deal with. So I think the system is even going to have more pressure on it. Mm-hmm. If you factor in the aging population and some other challenges, and then not every part of our society is, is treated equal. So there are uh, expectations for under served health care population. So I'm talking about Indigenous people, new Canadians that may have language barriers. Mm-hmm. We can expect a growth in those communities because they may not be able to access any kind of support or prevention. And prevention is a misnomer. It's really a, a delaying supportive tactic, but they may not have access to that. And the other piece of the, the thing that's staggering to me is that we know not why, but we know from research that about 63% of the people who are living with a dementia diagnosis are women. Mm. About 65% of the primary care partners or the family care partners are women. And so the, there's this double whammy attached to the women in our communities. And when you think about often women step out of their workforce or out of their career path for a number of years because they have children. Right. And now they're stepping out of the workforce and their career paths because they got to support a, a family member. So pensions and lifetime earnings and things like that are further impacted. And to give you a scope of what this really means, in Alberta in 2020, we were able to document about 40 million hours of unpaid family support of people living with dementia. Wow. So let me put that in the context. That's about the same as 23,000 full-time healthcare aides. Wow. So all of a sudden, if 23,000 healthcare professionals were to step out of their roles in the hospital system, disaster. So we have to pay attention to these things. We have to pay attention to different ways of working. 
because frequently healthcare support members, partners, become patients. They mm. get burnt out. You, they get fatigued. They get isolated from their peers, which is another contributing factor to dementia. And they're wrestling with, uh, physically wrestling with people, so helping them stand up and move around and bathe and things like that. And they're going to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And so all of this is leading towards a tsunami that's going to approach our healthcare system if we're not proactive at it. And just a note to our listeners, if you wanted to know more about these numbers, because they are staggering, you can head to our website, which is alzheimer.ab.ca, www.alzheimer.ab.ca, and click on research on the top menu. And then you can read this, this landmark study report yourself. It is unbelievable the numbers that are coming at us in the next 25 to 30 years, George. Um, What caught my eye too is the remarkable work they've done around ascribing values to prevention or delay of Alzheimer's or other dementias and how that affects everyone. Can you talk a bit about that? Certainly. So the the largest correlation to uh, dementia is age. As you get older, you're more likely to. Right. Now, it's not exclusively about age, but it is the culmination of a variety of different things over your life that realize themselves later in life. So uh, we know that if you're not keeping control of your blood pressure, if mm-hmm. you're uh, not physically active, if you're not socially engaged, so having a network of friends and things like that, if you're not intellectually engaged, so reading or participating in hobbies, things that challenge you, all of those things will pile up on top of each other, like sheets of paper, until you've got a hundred pound weight of sheets of paper that are is crushing you. So if you can pull each one of these sheets off as you go through your life and continue to be socialized and continue to be have good health and make sure you have regular attention to a physician so that you monitor your blood pressure and things along those lines, those are parts of uh, we know that can mm-hmm. help with that. The biggest, I think, thing right now that's ca- that causes me some alarm is the social isolation that comes with this right. disease. So, um, and you know, in the United Kingdom, they have created a cabinet post for social isolation. So there's a cabinet department that's making really? sure people aren't isolated because they understand the impact that has on health, healthcare oh, system. So that's a good idea. You know, um, and so think about it. So if you had a diagnosis of dementia, one of the things our navigators help people with is how can you stay involved in, in the workforce? How can employers stay, can, can accommodate you and things like that? Because mm-hmm. next to your home, the most place you do your socialization is in your work site and where you get intellectually challenged and you feel you provide value and things like that. And so it's really important that we find a way to keep people engaged. And it's important for individuals to understand that part of their job they support a quality of life is to stay engaged. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm purposely led off the conversation around mental health. It is not unrealistic to believe that you're going to have some mental health challenges as soon as you start realizing you've got a cognitive impairment. Absolutely. So you got to work through these things. We talk frequently of people having multiple morbidities. So you have, mo- you have multiple things impacting your health and we need to try and work, work through that process. And so, but the landmark study does give us some hope around Mm -hmm. if we're able to delay the onset by 10 years, that really helps. Not only is it 10 years 
improved quality of life, mm -hmm. 10 years with your family members, 10 years of your family members not being your care providers, we also know that it slows down the impact of symptoms. So they may, right. they may present themselves, but instead of presenting themselves and ultimately to the, your final conclusion, could be as short as five years, you know, it could be 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so how do we work through that? There are a variety of uh, projects and research happening around trying to come up with viable treatments. Mm -hmm. there, isn't, there isn't a magic pill yet. There is hope. There is lots of work being done on understanding the plaques on the brain, which is largely believed to be the cause of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are similar similarities between MS and Parkinson's and other neurological degenerative illnesses. So we're all kind of keeping in touch with each other. We're trying to have the same kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. And we are all becoming a little bit more united in how we talk to government. As I said earlier, governments are interested in doing the right thing. It's in their best interest to make sure we have a vibrant and healthy society and community. We just need to help them work through that because we are looking at a fire hose of information and we're trying to pick it up a thimbleful at a time. So how mm -hmm. do we work through that? And, you know, I would caution anyone, be careful about what you read on the Internet. Yes. There's no coconut cream cure. There's no vinegar <laughs> cure. There's no right. yodeling in the dark. I'm, look, I just made that one up. But there are, uh, there, <laughs> there is, so, we got to look at science, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you're, you're talking about government and participation. Tell me about funding. I understand it can be a significant challenge to so many health organizations, but what are some of the funding challenges that the Alzheimer's Society of Alberta and Northwest Territories faces right now? Well, I think there's a, a, a variety of things. You're absolutely correct. There are funding challenges for every health charity. Yeah. And the role of the not-for-profit sector in, in Canada has grown well beyond anybody's expectations. And I'll be really frank, our challenge is that people don't get better from dementia. You know, even if you mm -hmm. had um, if you had cancer or you had something else, there's a hope that you there's a cure right. or a treatment, things like that. So that's one thing. The other is because the majority of people who are living with the disease, it occurs to them later in life, and they had maybe not thought about this illness in their lifetime. Mm. So we haven't got those kinds of relationships with long-term donors. And we rely almost exclusively on the support of donors. We do not charge our people living with dementia for our services. We right. meet with them regularly. We help guide them through social uh, with social workers, through uh, work groups and work groups. We broker meetings with peers. We help them understand which programs they can apply to for government aid and support. We engage with people around talking about how they how they can learn more about the research that's happening locally, provincially, internationally. And so we provide all of those services for free and we rely heavily on on donations from the general public. Mm -hmm. So we're always going to rely on donations from the general public. And if you're a donor, thank you very much. If you're <laughs> thinking about it, Thank you for considering it. And if you haven't thought about it before, please think about it now <laughs> because it may be an investment in your own future or that right. of your children. Right. Now, that's true. The, the other thing that we work very closely, we've had good preliminary conversations with the government around understanding the work we do 
keeps people out of hospitals, allows them to stay in their own homes as long as possible, stay in their own communities as long as possible. So if they're out of long-term care and they're out of hospital, then that is a positive influence on the healthcare budget. Mm-hmm. Well, government understands that. So we're in conversations around how do how can you help us help you? <laughs> so we have navigate what we call navigators. These are social workers that are trained to help people through programming and uh, and understand what their options are available. We need more of those people so we can help more people. So there uh, is an ROI, so to speak, on investing and funding from the gov and also you know, from donors, of course, but there's an ROI at the end because then our healthcare system and long-term care facilities yeah. wouldn't be as overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are just in the process of quantifying that. I can't give you an answer at the moment. We're mm-hmm. working on that, but let me give you an anecdotal study. My own mother's circumstance. So she just passed away. She had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. um, and, you know, she had the, the typical challenges a lot of people have with dementia. Um, she she fell several times. She was confused, slipped downstairs, fell out of chairs, fell out of bed, mm-hmm. broke arms, hips, legs, things like that. Every one of those times, she had to go in an ambulance. We had to stay in an emergency room, which was and the emergency room technicians and nurses and doctors, paramedics were all very professional, all very considerate, but they were busy. Mm-hmm. And you know, so they're so three or four days in a, in a hospital getting X-rayed getting CAT scans, waiting for a bed to clear up so we can getting her casted and things like that. All of those things took up resources. And then mm-hmm. she's staying in the hospital until she can be discharged. And and her challenge as well, too, uh, unknown to her family, she wasn't managing her medication properly. So that took some time to sort oh. through the process. Is and, that common for dementia? Um, it is not uncommon. So uh, mm-hmm. in, in our particular case, I thought I was being proactive because I made arrangements with the pharmacy to blister pack things. And the blister packs were dated Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning, right. lunch. And in my mother's changing state, she liked popping the pills out of the packaging because that was kind of fun. And she <sighs> put all the pills in a little candy jar and she was eating the pills like they were candies, depending on the color, as oh, opposed no. to what they were for. So not surprising, her medication was way out of whack before we knew what was going on. And that's a trip to the hospital. Oh. Whereas with proper supervision and shortly once we knew that was an issue proper supervision so her medication is is monitored and is in a locked case and we moved her into a supportive living space mm-hmm. uh, because the house that we had wasn't suitable was too many stairs and so she needed to go someplace where she could be safe and it's all part of her trajectory of, uh, of her life and things along those mm-hmm. lines but she was in the hospital in the last 30 months probably 18 months last three months of her life she was 18 months in a hospital very expensive way to do that. And you know what? Hospitals aren't a great place to be. You're not going to get no. better because they're noisy. The place is full of sick people. And in our particular case, it was during COVID. Mm. So um, limited contact. With the health authority was eventually very supportive. And I was able, one family member was able to come in. But that meant I was there six hours every day looking wow. after her until I got COVID. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't go into a hospital full of sick people and think you're going to get out scot-free. And, you know, I sprayed myself down with Lysol in the parking lot before I got into my vehicle. I changed clothes and threw my dirty clothes in the back of the truck and put the clean clothes on. I gave a giggle <laughs> to a couple of people in the parking lot, but I wasn't oh, going to take that chance. Um, <laughs> it was a little brisk in the wintertime. But the reality was, is you do whatever you can. And 
the very best thing would have been for her not to have been in the hospital. Not so, the best outcome. It's not the best yeah. place to heal. No, and, you know, going back to the other comments I made around social isolation, that we, we saw firsthand the terrible, terrible results of the pandemic. People were locked in their rooms. They couldn't even go down for meals together. They didn't socialize with people. And there was the quality of life was like going off the end of a cliff. Mm. Because when she went to this long-term care, she was a little bit iffy. And then things improved a bit because she was able to socialize with other people. All of her personal friends had passed, for the most part, in her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's with a group of people that are similar age. They all love bingo and knitting. And so things kind of rallied along. And then COVID, they all got locked down. They couldn't leave their rooms. Oh. And so, um, you know, we use technology as best we can. But when you're in your 80s, you're not really familiar with no. MS Teams and Zoom and things like that. So mm. um, you do what you can the way you can. That's right. That's right. Um, George, when you look at the report or you you look at what is estimated for the next 25 30 years. How does that make you feel as a child of someone who struggled with dementia? So uh, I find that the stats incredibly sobering and and somewhat depressing. Mm. At the same time, I find it hopeful. Hopeful because we're paying attention to it now, Mm -hmm. quantifying the financial impact. We're quantifying the human impact, which has a financial component. We know that if we take some steps, especially around lifestyle and other things, that we can delay things. So all of that now is being articulated and documented in ways that 10 years ago could Right, right. Um, but the reality is, is that if you think that you, you might have a cognitive decline issues now in your 60s and 70s, you really needed to be involved in preventative activities 30, 20 to 30 years ago. Now, mm-hmm. it's never too late to stop. There's lots of learning from you know, our friends, the Cancer Foundations and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, there's part of the thing is that there is no viable cure or uh, there's hope for treatment that will delay the onset of symptoms. There's no hope for a cure at the moment. Right. But there is. It's an incredible breakthrough now that we're all talking about quality of life. Mm-hmm. In many ways, up until last a decade, if you had dementia, there was no conversational quality of life. You were on a fixed trajectory. It was never going to get any better. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, fortunately, the old, our older populations got their voice. And they, and they, they said, no, nice and clear, I, I'm a person and I want to stay here and I have every right to be here. And so I want to stay in my own community. I want to stay in my own home. I want to stay in my family as best I can. And I don't want to be a burden on my family. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we work through that process? So. The research that's coming out of the landmark report, some of the other research that's coming from international sources, is is talking really about quality of life. Mm-hmm. And by pursuing quality of life, you're also pursuing the abatement of onset of symptoms. So, Absolutely. you know, I can't overestimate the importance of socialization. Having a purpose. Having a purpose is, is one of the top five things that help a person mm-hmm. feel engaged and have quality of life. So going to work volunteering, be engaged in your community, all of those things will help you improve quality of life, which will help defer the onset of these symptoms, which gives us hope as a society. And so. It all builds together. Yeah, it's a a system Mm -hmm. that needs attention at all interaction points. 
what you're saying about how the quality of life and just even looking at that for a person affected by dementia is is new. It's new on the scene. And it's it's a good sign that there's going to be some vitality involved in a dementia diagnosis and a dementia journey. You know, I would say I'd say slightly differently. I think I think you're you're correct. But I'd say as individuals, we probably were always aware that we wanted to have good quality of life. We felt that, you know, we want to have a good experience with our children, our spouses, our family members, things like that. I want to make sure I'm making a contribution of work and things along those lines. So we were interested in that individual. However, now society saying we want a collective agreement that quality of life is important. We want government regulators to say quality of life is so important. We want to find a way to regulate it and measure it and support it, probably tax it eventually. But they... (laughs) um, but it's important now that we understand that this is something we can grab mm-hmm. because it's that important. Whereas, you know, we were all very, amongst the people I know, mm-hmm. very quiet around our quality of life, very um, reserved. And if things worked out well, that's great. And we had a hope of having good quality of life. Now I think people say, I demand to have quality of life. Mm-hmm. I want bike paths. I want walking paths. I want to be able to shop when I want to shop. I mm-hmm. want to be able to get the healthy food that I need to get. I want government policy to support all of these things. I want to stay mm-hmm. in my community as long as I want. It's not I hope to. It's right. like I demand to. And so I think Watching. as a society, we're changing away. We're taking more ownership for our own health. And I think that's all of these are good things. Uh, we just need to find a way to make the systems work together. Mm-hmm. To create a life worth living. Exactly. Yeah. People describe a range of emotions related to being a care partner of someone with dementia, including guilt, confusion, resentment, helplessness, grief, and sadness. We often hear questions like, what do you do when they don't want to take a shower anymore? How do I communicate with them effectively? Or how am I going to afford this? The Seeds of Hope Family Learning Series from the Alzheimer's Society of Alberta and the Northwest Territories helps answer these types of questions and defines phases of dementia in terms of the caregiving journey you face as the person with dementia progresses through the disease. The educational series is offered in person at our regional offices and online at alzheimer.ab.ca. The online series is presented through video segments with participation from people living with dementia and care partners. Both the in-person and online series offers participants an opportunity to reflect on care and support strategies and connect with others in similar circumstances. Again, head to our website, alzheimer.ab.ca, under Asant Cafe to find out more. Um, stigma. It's, it is getting better. You know, the talk about mental health is much more open these days, but how does that play a role as, as someone who's leading a nonprofit organization of a a condition that is loaded with stigma? How, Um, how does that play out? Well, it plays out in a variety of different ways. I mean, first of all, how can you embrace quality of life if you don't want to talk about important things in your own life so Mm -hmm. that's part of the other things and if you don't feel safe in talking about it you've got a stigma Uh, other people may stigmatize you because they think um, because you have dementia 
I mean, my mother, when I was helping her, people start speaking louder to her. Well, she's not deaf. She has Alzheimer's. <laughs> and so because they just don't know how to cope with it. We haven't done very good as a society to help people. Mm. You know, I remember looking at uh, bumped into a woman at, at uh, Safeway and she was out shopping, looking for groceries. And she put her purse down someplace in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And so she got came to the till and she did a lot of things, but she was all upset because she couldn't remember where her purse was. So it took a few of us together and paid for her food. And the, the staff at Safeway was very helpful. And they went and they found her. Someone found her purse and turned it in and brought it back to her. And things like so there is a microchasm, a micro focus of a community that rallied around to help a person feel good and mm-hmm. didn't try, didn't laugh at her, didn't make fun of her. It helped her make sure that she did she felt it's okay to forget things mm-hmm. and so we move on so i think that's an example of where stick no lack of stigma was helpful and understanding and it was interesting to me because there were people who are watching who didn't really understand what was going on and it might have been the mm-hmm. first time they've ever been exposed to that kind of thing right and if i flip back to my own family ex- experience we were a very tight family my mother lives in the same city as us my father passed on a few years before um we had this medication imbalance issue happen so the doctor when she was my mother was being diagnosed and treated we went there and um she said well she, she really can't be left unsupervised with her medication and i said well this is the first time it happened i don't, I don't really know what's going on and she says well with her uh, with her diagnosis, she shouldn't be left unattended. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, she's got dementia. She has uh, vascular dementia, and it's going to probably go into Alzheimer's. And I said, well, how, how long is this happening? And he said, you, he couldn't believe I didn't know. Oh. So according to his files, my mother had a diagnosis about four years beforehand. And wow. so my father was quite ill with cancer, and we thought my mother was my father's caregiver. And it was my father looking after my mother. And then when he passed, all of this just oh. percolated out. And we had thought the sudden loss of my father, his cancer took a bit of a turn quickly, caused her to get confused. But really what was happening is he was always looking after her medication and dressing her and looking after things. So, oh. so I had some time with my mother and I said, so, you know, so tell me more about this. It's just, he's making it up. He's a liar. Oh. I said, what, what are you talking about? He says, he's not a liar. He's a doctor. And he's got, I got a picture, I got a PET scan here. He says, well, I'll, it'll get better. It happens all the time and it gets better. Said, yeah, no. So oh. she was in denial. Yeah. And then I, so, so I, and she says, and you can't tell your brother or your sister. And I said, yeah, you can't put that on me. Oh. I'm going to have a conversation with them. And she got very upset and started crying because she thought that the, her children would think less of her because she had this neurological disease and then when i then she said and you can't tell my sister and you know and of course i had to um but she was terrified that we were all going to just ignore her and treat her like an imbecile in her word um because that's that's the way she because she's a woman at that time she was a woman in early 80s this Mm -hmm. is what happened if someone got a little bit odd they got locked away and oh. so she was living in fear of being locked away and being ignored by her family and things like that. So that's just a, an end of one case study. I think it's repeated hundreds, if not tens of thousands of times. Mm-hmm. And so the message for everybody is 
insert yourself into the conversation. Make sure people feel good about themselves and make sure they feel like they're part of a contributing member of, the, of, the, of society and, and society being your family society or whatever your community. Um, don't make assumptions. Right. Yeah. And I think, too, because it's a not necessarily a disability, but it's it's uh, it, it has effects that aren't visible. So when you see someone with dementia, you don't know until maybe you start interacting with them or if you're a member of like a retail store or, or Safeway or wherever you happen to be interacting with people, you don't know. Well, so and you know, there's there's lots of information out there. It's trying to how to filter it, and that's where our society comes into play. But before I got involved with the society, I remember taking my mother out for a walk and we was just getting her used to a wheelchair because she was having some, she was balance challenges. And it was spring in Edmonton, so it was a nice day and the snow was melting and I was trying to push the wheelchair across a wet sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Well, she got hysterical that I was trying to kill her. Oh no. So it took us, it took me a half an hour to calm her down and figure things out until she was eventually able to tell me, at least a half an hour, that in her mind, that wet sidewalk looked like a hole in the ground. Oh. So her, the people with dementia, their perceptions are different. Right. And so there is a, there was a study that came out of Scotland. So they were trying to figure out why do people with dementia fall down? They fall down lots, but why do they fall down so much in the bathroom? Mm. And so there was all kinds of, you know, speculation. You go there, the water floor is wet or whatever. What they found was people's perception people with dementia have spatial dispatch this uh, perception challenges they have trouble differentiating depth they have trouble seeing white on white so guess what color most toilets are and toilet seats are ah they're white they're white so they can't tell how far it is so they slip fall so putting black toilet seats on and so in the long-term care facilities as well they put black toilet seats on all the toilets the falls fell by 25 percent Interesting. They put black covers on the light switches. So when people go to the bathroom, they can see where the light switch is. Yes. And so, and that helps them see where they're going and things like that. So there are, so part of what we do here is talk about tricks or tricks. Most of the younger clients here refer to them as life hacks. Mm, so having exactly. a black toilet seat, life hack. Or and or even better, if you can get the light switches that have the little light glow switch on, so they're always have a little bit of power into that. Mm-hmm. Small small things, but if you think about it, if a person slips in the bathroom, they break their hip. If it doesn't heal, which happens as you get older, mm-hmm. um, there's a strong correlation of end of life and broken hip. Yes, I've heard and this. So. Yeah. Because it's it's a major break, and if it doesn't heal properly, you can't do surgery and things like that. So, mm-hmm. but even if they don't, it's a long, painful recovery. So a person could be in a hospital for three months yep. for the price of a thirteen dollar toilet seat. Oh, wow, that is handrails strategically placed should be in everybody's home if they fell. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. And these are things that the Alzheimer's Society of Alberta and Northwest Territories can help anyone who calls our, our toll-free number. It's one 855 And then, of course, our website, again, is www.alzheimer.ab.ca. George, can you tell me more about the research aspect of what the society is doing? 
Well, we're funding a variety of different research. So as I said, we're doing some research on the true cost of hospitalization for people with dementia. So I'm looking forward to that study. We are um, the National Society, the Alzheimer's Society of Canada is just finishing up a study around the economic impact of people living with dementia, which is more than just hospitalization costs, but lost productivity in the workforce of people leaving their jobs earlier and things along those lines. So I think that's an interesting piece because then from a government perspective, you know, the longer you can keep people in the workforce, the more taxes they're going to pay, the more productive the companies are going to be, the more wealth they're going to generate, all of these mm -hmm. different things. There is uh, some interesting um, research emerging around how to treat the plaques on the brain without giving out too much information. Human beings aren't the only mammals that actually have plaques on brain, but some some mammals, when they go through the hibernation cycle, the plaques come on the brain when they sleep and it comes off the brains when they don't sleep. So how do you make those enzymes and plaques disappear? So there's mm -hmm. some interesting research on that. That's a 20-year horizon, but mm. uh, uh, looking forward to that. There are um, There's some research uh, that we've just funded, which is going to be talking about the importance of dementia and supportive communities. So having parks, having uh, facilities that allow people, you know, that kind of space. There's some research around how to how to make every place a safe place. So mm. when if you're as old as me, I don't know if you're uh, and you're not, but uh, <laughs> there used to be such a thing as called block parents. And mm. so kids, they would they'd be trained and registered by local communities. And they put a sign up on their window saying that they were block parents. So if a kid was being lost or being bullied, he knew or she knew that was a safe place to go. A few years ago, many of the uh, post-secondaries in Western Canada went through um, uh, a mental health first aid process. So if someone was feeling overwhelmed or was concerned about, you know, they might harm themselves or whatever, they could look around and they could see the symbol that said it was a safe place to go. And there was someone there who had been trained and counseled. Well, I think the next step is having people trained and, and counseled on how to support someone who's a little bit confused, who might have some cog early cognitive development, and how do we put that sign up? So if you're uh, someone at a, at a retailer has a badge on that says, you know, says something that says, that I'm a safe person to talk to. Or dementia friendly. Uh, dementia friendly. We want right. to make a different, you know, dementia supportive uh, work for them workplace. So when their clients come in, they know that's a safe place to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, and once we train people to be that resource, then of course they have this network that goes out and they start sharing that information with all their friends. And then that helps reduce the stigma, but also lets people know that, hey, this is just part of life. Mm -hmm. If we saw someone at a, at a grocery store and they fell down and twisted their ankle, we would probably help them. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't necessarily find amusement in their pain and suffering because yeah. that's not what humans do because we understand what's happening here and we understand that for the grace of God that could be me and now we're trying to parallel that kind of thinking process into a dementia environment. Mm -hmm. What about considerations for the vast amount of cultures and um, the changing the changing environment in terms of languages and cultural norms and things like that. How does that come into play in, in uh, the treatment it, of dementia? It, in some ways, it makes it more complicated. In some ways, it makes it easier. So in Canada, like a lot of countries, we have had an increase of immigration for people mm -hmm. from all over the world for a whole lot mm -hmm. of really good reasons. 
So we know that when people have have dementia, they have the cognitive impairment. Sometimes they default to their longer term memory. So they, if they learned English later in life, they may not be able to speak English. Oh. Or maybe they're not speaking English right now. Or if they're not, they may. There's this assumption that everybody is literate, and people may not be literate in English. They may not be literate in their own language. So how do you find a way to communicate with them in that? There's lots of societies that have a history of intergenerational support mm -hmm. so which is good in that there's people there to be care partners but you have to develop a level of trust to say hey it's okay for an outsider to help your family mm -hmm. so how do we work through those processes as well too and then you've got people who are coming from terrible circumstances who who have reason not to trust authority so right. so how do you uh, and you know, when you have dementia, you are nervous generally. You, there's a, a thing called sundowning, which is a real thing. So people with dementia, they get afraid at nighttime. They get very anxious and angry and frustrated. And it's, it gets dark, they get afraid. And it's called sundowning, and it is a real thing. Really? You have some extremes depending on the progression of the illness. So some people will gravitate towards the, their more pleasant experiences. Mm -hmm. Most people gravitate towards their worst experiences. And again, for some women, they've had horrific experiences when they're younger. Mm -hmm. And that's what comes to the top of mind, being isolated, being hurt, being threatened and, and things along those lines. So we have to be aware of all of those things. And then you put an extra filter on top of that of the cultural normalities. And then on top of that, you've got some people of different faith backgrounds where some things are accepted and not accepted and how do you work through those processes it's been my personal experience if you go in with good intention and you try to help you can always work around those other things mm -hmm. but that but you have to be conscious of that you have to be respectful for people's cultures and make sure that um, we work through those things and then i think the last thing that we have to do as a society is we haven't been very we're a little bit behind i think on how we support the lgbtq communities because that's a different kind of stigma again and like then a of double course, stigma well yeah or maybe even triple because in some communities they may not have financial rights mm. uh they might have some conflict with their families or their families may not be their primary care partners they could be chosen families as opposed to biological families that's it's right. just another level of complication that cannot be ignored no doubt about it cognitive declined illnesses is a terrible thing when people start losing loved ones and family members and identity and place in society, it's even worse. So we just yeah. need to be there. As a human being, we need to be there. We need to be there. George, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Before we go, I wanted to wrap things up by asking you if you, you know, we see these estimates for the next 25 years from the landmark study. If you had your blue sky wish, what would you like to see happen in the next 25 years around dementia? I think what I'd like to see is have people decide to do what they can. So if you can make a donation, do that. Mm -hmm. If you are a researcher, you can make a contribution to the science, do that. If you have children in your household and you haven't been exposed to someone living with a cognitive decline disease, talk to them about it so that they become participants in the society. I think everybody needs to be able to do something. Mm -hmm. Now we, uh, as I said, 
we rely exclusively on the on the support of donors and i see that happening for future we could use more people absolutely but the uh, but we will never turn people away we'll find a way to make it happen and if depending on where you are if you're in it we have people come in from other provinces and other countries to use our website anybody's welcome to use our website i can tell you that well, the staff in Alberta and Northwest Territories are absolutely passionate and will do whatever they can for their clients. It's exactly the same in every province. So no matter where you are, reach out to the Alzheimer's Society uh, and they'll, they'll be interested in helping. And it's not just for Alzheimer's, it's any kind of form of dementia or cognitive impairment. That's right. And, and even if, if you're not sure, ask them and they'll connect you with what the best options are for you. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much, George. It was a pleasure, George Andrews, to have you today on our episode. And this won't be the last time we talk to you. I guarantee it. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cognitive Connections, Conversations on Dementia with the Alzheimer's Society of Alberta and Northwest Territories. If you're looking for additional resources, support, or more information on dementia, head over to our website, at alzheimer.ab.ca. Here you'll find a wealth of resources, support, programs, and more. We encourage you to share this podcast with anyone who may benefit from these conversations and leave us a review. Join us again next time as we continue to explore the multifaceted aspects of dementia with our insightful guests. Until then, take care, stay connected, and remember that every conversation counts in the realm of cognitive connections.